0: Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture is found from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Please join with me as I read the scripture aloud. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father had set up by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white cloths stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who had been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Albert.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors, Eric, here at Trinity. Um, As we were making a lot of these updates and changes and getting ready for fall kickoff, fall kickoff. This is my my third fall kickoff here uh, with Trinity, and it's always a highlight for me, not just because I get to stand up here and say, free tacos for all, but also um, because we get to invite all of you further into what what Jesus is doing and uh, what we believe Jesus is building here in our church community. One one little thing I wanted to point out, just in case there was confusion, if you even made it to the back of the bulletin, there's like um, an updated list of our staff. That's all accurate except for one um, important um, mistake and typo. Just in case you were wondering, we haven't made a staff change. Uh, Sarah Kim was was our ministry coordinator and um, our ministry um, communications lead, it's still Susan on. And Susan did a ton of work to get this ready, so be sure to thank her. We'll get that um, typo change next week. So this fall, we will be studying the book of Acts together. The book of Acts, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. This book is a book that covers 30 years of history that completely changed the world. In those 30 years, we see a group of 120 people that we read about here in this text. This group of 120 people believed that Jesus was risen from the dead, that He was alive, and that that was the most important fact in history that changed everything. So the book of Acts tells us the story of how did this group of 120 people become a worldwide movement? That made it all the way to the capital of the Roman Empire there in the city of Rome. So it shows us how the message of Jesus went viral across the ancient world. Churches were sprouting up everywhere. All kinds of people from every background were becoming convinced that Jesus was alive and risen. They were becoming followers of Jesus. And so Acts is interesting and provocative. It's, it's a great book to study from many different angles. We can look at it from the historical angle and ask how did this happen? How did this small group of, of followers become a world changing movement? And Acts tells us the foundational story. We can look at it from a personal aspect, we can look at it from a personal angle. Where do I fit into this story? How does it impact my life? And we can also look at it as a church, which we'll be doing. It shows us as a church, where did we come from? Or we could say, it shows us the blueprint for the church. After 2,000 years, it's like we still have the blueprint that Jesus was working off. We see him building the church. It's his design. It's his plan in action. So that's why we're calling this series Blueprint. And before we move into the focus of this morning's message, I just want to say a few things about the book as a whole. These are important things for us to keep in mind for this morning's message, but also as we continue on this fall in the book of Acts. First, it's title. I don't know what it says in your Bible. In mine, it just says Acts. And so the question is, the Acts of who? It might say in your Bible, the Acts of the Apostles. That's the traditional uh, subtitle of the book, Acts of the Apostles. But as we'll see this morning, that's actually not the best title for the book, the intended title for the book. This book of Acts is actually first and foremost the Acts of Jesus. And you could say right alongside that, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. As we look at verse 1-1 of In uh, the text that we just read, the author of Acts, Luke, says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, this is the person he's writing to, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the clear implication here in the first sentence of the book is this book is volume two. This book is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. So the main character in the book of Acts is not the apostles or the church or or us, but it's Jesus. It's about his Acts. It's how Jesus built the church. So that's the title. What about the author? The author of Acts, as I already said, is a man named Luke. He was the same author of the gospel of Luke. He's the only non-Jewish author in the New Testament. And what you need to know about Luke is he's probably the most sophisticated and methodological author in the entire Bible, maybe, but especially in the New Testament. Back in the Gospel of Luke, where he introduces Volumes 1 and 2, he says to the same person he's writing to, Theophilus, he says, let me tell you how I approached the, the, the writing and the forming of these narratives, Theophilus. He says, it was after careful investigation. He was talking to the eyewitnesses. There in Acts 1, he says... I wrote these in orderly sequence so you might have certainty about all the things that you've heard. That introduction to Luke also applies to Acts as well. So I'm saying that because the stories that Luke chooses to tell about all the many stories that happen in the history of the early church are very carefully selected. How he tells them and even the sequence in which he tells them is important. Historians note and have noted for many years that Luke's attention to detail is amazing. He gives details about sailing. He gives details about geography. He gives details about the political leaders in all these cities in the ancient world. And history has proven time and time again that he's completely accurate. Why do I share all that? Because here in the beginning of the book of Acts, as Luke is starting off with these two scenes, we're going to talk about these two scenes this morning. Jesus' last moments with the disciples and then their first reaction after he left them. Those two scenes are very intentionally placed here at the beginning of the narrative. If Acts is a blueprint, then verses 1 through 14, these first two scenes, they show us the foundation of the church. What was the very first thing that Jesus built into his people, What was the very first thing that Jesus laid down for his church? Well, for a house, when you're building a house, the first thing you lay down is the foundation. And as we've shared um, with many of you, as I've shared with a lot of you, we have come to realize in a very personal uh, manner in our own lives how important a foundation is to a house. We had to move out of a house that we were renting because there was a leak. In the foundation. And so we've learned that the dreaded words when it comes to a house is slab leak. Once you hear those words, brace yourself, it's all over. You don't want to hear those words if you're a homeowner. Because it can look all dandy and fine and wonderful from the outside. But if something is happening to the foundation, then pretty soon, after a while, the whole house is unlivable. The whole house can break down because the foundation is bad. In order to build the church, in order to build a life, the foundation has to be right. So, we're going to look here at these 14 verses and look at three things. These three things Jesus built into the foundation of the church. And these three things he wants to build into the foundation of of our church and of our lives. So we're going to look at these three this morning. The first is proof. The second is promise. The third is prayer. The first foundation of the Christian faith and of the church is proof. The Christian faith, the church, what I mean by that is this, is built on historical events, Things that really happened, things that are true. If we're going to build our life on something, Christianity says, well, it better be true. It better be true. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me again in Acts. Here it is, the introduction to the book. And in verses 1 and 2, he recaps volume 1. As we said, he says, the gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he ascended into heaven. That's where Luke ended in uh, chapter 24 of his gospel. And then in verse 3, he tells us what happened in the 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and then Jesus' ascension. There were 40 days in between those two events. And here's what he says. Verse 3. After Jesus had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. By many convincing proofs. This term here is significant. It's a term that was used throughout Greek historiography as they were accounting events, and they wanted to emphasize this is what really happened. You could translate it proof beyond doubt. So Luke builds on this foundation. Throughout the book of Acts, when he shows people talking about Jesus, when he, he, he speaks of the gospel moving into new places where people are like, what is this? What are you guys talking about? The words he uses for that conversation, here are some of the words he uses. Reasoning, proving, persuading, dialogue, and discussion. Here at the beginning of Acts and throughout the book of Acts, Luke is trying to get something very clear across These things really happened. In Luke 24, the way he ended the gospel, he ends with the resurrection. And Luke goes there uh, to great lengths to show that Jesus really rose from the dead. He says he ate with the disciples. He could actually eat. He had the same wounds and scars from the crucifixion, and they touched him. He was real. It was true. Now in his introduction to the story of the church, he says the church began with Jesus spending 40 days presenting Convincing proof. And you might say, isn't just one day enough? Why 40 days? Isn't just one appearance, wouldn't that have been enough? And I guess I would follow up that that thought with a question. Would it be enough for you? Or would you explain one experience away? Jesus' resurrection is hard to believe. It was as hard, if not harder, for them to believe back then as it is now. It was met with just as much doubt and skepticism, even by his closest followers who he kept telling them, This is going to happen. So here's Jesus at the very beginning of the book of Acts saying, You are not going anywhere. Nobody is doing anything until you are convinced this is true. I am alive. This is the foundation of foundations. This is the foundation of everything else. The Christian faith, therefore the church, is not then about checking our brains at the door and abandoning reasoning, logic, and the search for what is true and real. It's not about blind faith. It is founded, Acts tells us, upon convincing proof, history, truth, things that really happened and therefore are continuing to happen. And so the reason why Christianity should believe, uh, Acts tells us, is not first of all because of its practical value, it has a lot of practical value, it's not because of its moral value, although it has great ethical value, it's not because of its emotional and satisfaction value at at the level of our emotions and heart, although it does have that as well. Acts says the foundation of the church, the reason Christianity should be believed is because it's true. Now, I can't right now go into a full-blown defense of or case for the resurrection, but if you waver, if you struggle with that, if you're here this morning and you are investigating Christianity and you're not quite sure whether it is true, my encouragement to you is look into it. Dig into it. The resources are there and there are great resources. I would say start with the work of Michael Lycona or N.T. Wright. Those are a couple of good places to start. My Christian friends, when you are struggling subjectively in your faith, for any kind of reason, if you're struggling with the church because the church is broken and messed up, if you're struggling with suffering, if you're struggling with doubts and skepticism, here's what I would say to you. Come back to this foundation. This is the foundation of all foundations. Come back to the resurrection. There are um, some pastors, some people, some of you that have the gift of faith. I believe that there is such a thing as the gift of faith, scriptures say, there is such a thing. People with the gift of faith that I've I've met and encountered have a simplicity to their faith. Not not shallowness, not simple-mindedness, but there's a simplicity. God is there, he is real, the resurrection happened, therefore I believe it and I move forward in faith. That, we need people with the gift of faith. And I wish I had that gift. But God has given me a different gift, And it's the gift of doubt. The gift of doubt, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because I go through seasons where I have to come back to the very foundations and go, okay, hold on, I've got this question. I've got to come at it from this angle. I need to sort this all out. And I've gone through those seasons and I go through those seasons. And I want to share with you how this is helpful to me in those seasons, this foundation of all foundations. For me, when those seasons come, what I do is I don't so much go back and review and rehearse the evidence for the resurrection. That's important, and I've needed to do that. But instead, what I do is not so much prove the resurrection, but I review and remember what the resurrection proves is true. Let me me put up a slide here. Let me have Gavin put that slide up. Here's what I mean by that. If the resurrection is true, then it proves everything else is true that I know is true, but I can't prove. This is what's most helpful to me in seasons of doubt. Not to, not to have proof of the resurrection, but to see all over again and discover what the resurrection proves. Let me share some examples. I know love is real. You know love is real. Every human being knows love is real and true. But what's our proof for that? What else proves that love is real? And it's the core substantive reality at the heart of everything and not just a chemical reaction. It's not just a biological instinct. It's the father raising the son he loves from the grave, vindicating his perfect life and sending out the spirit of his son. Proof. Love is real. Another example, I know right and wrong are real. We all know right and wrong, they're real. They're true things. And I know... Right will win. I don't, I don't know why I know that. All our movies play out that same narrative and story. Right beats wrong. It's true. We know it. But what proves it? What else proves right and wrong are real things, not just social and cultural constructs. And that right will one day win the day. It's the resurrection of Jesus, which is the preview and the glimpse and the guarantee. Right triumphs over wrong. I also know, last example, that evil and suffering, they should not be. When I feel them in my heart, when I see them in the world, I say, this should not be. Injustice should not exist. It's true. But how can I prove it? What else is proof that injustice and suffering are intruders in the world and our lives, and that we were made for a life to be free from pain, a life of eternal joy? The resurrection proves it. In Jesus, God's new creation has come. And so for me, this is the most helpful thing. I come back to the foundation and realize the resurrection is proof that everything I know and I can't deny is real and is true because Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus risen and alive, that's the foundation of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if it's not true... Like right now, if it's not true, let's pack up, let's go home, he says. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We don't have proof that right wins in the end. But because it is true, we have proof. Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation, and it's the beginning of God renewing me and all things. An implication for our lives, another implication. This, when we come back to this foundation, Over and over again, that is a cure. One author says, this is a cure for our practical deism. Our practical deism. Jesus did not just come. God did not just wind up the world and do these things that are recorded in this book and then just say, okay, I'm leaving, I'm ascending. Now, it's up to you. The book of Acts says no. That is not what it means that Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen and he is alive. At work. He is present. He is building the church. It's not all up to us. It's up to him. He is not a distant memory. He is present and working. He is the actor. He is acting in our lives, in the church, in the world. And this is the most foundational and important reality for a church and for a life. It makes all the difference. The first foundation of the church And of a life is proof. Second, the second is promise. Luke tells us here that during the 40 days Jesus spent with his followers after the resurrection, he did two things. One, he presented himself alive, as we said, with many convincing proofs. And then, back to verse 2, what's the second thing he did? He gave them instructions. And verses 4 through 8 tell us what those instructions were. Verse 4, while Jesus was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Wait for the Father's promise. Those were Jesus' instructions. He said, wait. Are there any harder instructions for us to receive in this life than wait? Just wait. (laughs) We don't like that. Here they are, these disciples, can you imagine it, enter into the scene. They're coming to grips with this reality. Jesus is alive. He's here. He's risen. Okay, now what does it mean? What do we do? What are you going to do? What's happening? All these things are swirling in their minds. And Jesus says, okay, just wait. Wait for it. And they're like, wait? Wait. And so they ask a follow-up question. It's in verse 6. This is a natural question for them to ask. They say, okay, wait, but um, at this time, are you going to restore all your kingdom to Israel? And they're asking, well, what time is it? We're going to do more than wait. It's not waiting time, is it? This is a theological question. They're asking him, is this the promised restoration that was foretold in the prophets, when all things will be made right, when out of Jerusalem and Israel the world will be blessed? And God's intentions will be restored. Is it that time? But it's not only a theological question, it's also a very deeply personal question. They're asking this. Is it time for the restoration of all things to the way they should be? Are you going to make all things right in my life now? Are you going to rid all the suffering, all the tears, all the sin, all the struggle, All the injustice, all the hurt, all the wounds, isn't it time for that now? That's the question under the question here. Did you see Jesus' answer? It's in verse 7 and 8. He doesn't really answer it directly, does he? It's kind of a yes and no answer. What he's saying there is that the promised restoration has already come in his resurrection in Jesus and with the coming of the Holy Spirit, but it has not yet fully come. The time has not yet fully arrived. The kingdom will come, but he says, not in the way that you think. He's actually referencing the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, where he says, here is how the kingdom will come. Not as, you, not as you think of it. We're not going to be lords over the earth in triumphant victory right now. It's going to come in the same way that I brought it, through service and often through suffering. Jesus' answer is a repeat of the promise he said in verse 4 where he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. But it's not until 10 days later. Okay, so Jesus said this. He ascended 10 days later, Acts chapter 2, when the promise is fulfilled that this actually happens. And so here's a question I was asking as I was reflecting on that this week. Why not right away? Okay, so in verse 9, Jesus is taken up and everybody's watching. And you would think that's the perfect dramatic moment right there. Boom. Send down the Holy Spirit right away. He said, just wait here. I will send the Spirit. He goes up, and it would be a dramatic fulfillment to what Jesus had just said. It would be a great part of the book of Acts, a great story to tell. But Jesus said, wait. Just wait for 10 days. Why? Well, I think he's teaching them a crucial lesson here at the foundation of the church, this foundational moment in the church. That God is a promise-keeping God. And a promise always involves a waiting period. God is a promise-keeping God, but a promise always involves a waiting period. Okay, waiting period. Those might be two of the most hated words in the English language. Waiting period. It means to us, wasted time. Time where I could be doing something better. A time when nothing is happening. A time when I could be doing something productive, you may have seen the California DMV has been in the news lately. Did you see this? It's not good press, <laughs> in case you were wondering. They were called out by the California legislature for horrendous waiting times, and so they they've made like a response and a comeback and so I saw this article uh, recently it said. Uh, And this was the DMV coming back and saying, actually, things are going great. They said this was Wednesday. Customers in the DMV have an average waiting time of 100 minutes. And they were bragging on that as if that was good. They said that's down 30 minutes. So from 130 minutes down to 100 minutes. Even now, if you have to wait, I know some of you have recently had to wait in the DMV. I mean, even before the age of cell phones, it was hard. And now you would say, well, you got your cell phone. Just take care of stuff. You got entertainment. But that doesn't help because you're there to do something. And if you have to wait, if there's a waiting period until it can be done, it doesn't matter how much distraction you have. It still feels like torture. Ten days of waiting here at the foundation of the church. Luke is trying to say something. He says it over and over in the book of Acts. God is a promise-making and a promise-fulfilling God. It's one of the main themes we'll see unfold in the book of Acts, that God has kept his promises. He has fulfilled them in Christ. And through Jesus, he is and will continue to fulfill them in the church and through his people, and he will one day bring them to completion. But the hard thing about a promise, the reason we make a promise in the first place is because there's going to be some waiting, right? We don't make a promise if we're about to do something right away. If I were to stand up here, I don't have to go, I promise you, everyone, you will have tacos. I don't have to make that promise because I can just say, we're going to have tacos. But when maybe you're dealing with a child who's saying, when can I have my own cell phone? When will that day come? You say to that child, I promise that day will come. It's going to happen soon. But what you're saying to them is wait. It's not now. Promise. Promise is needed at the very foundation of our lives. It's needed at the very foundation of our churches because so much of our lives in the here and now is waiting. And like the apostles ask, we say, why? Why do we have to wait? Why can't it be now? Why isn't now the time? And the best answer I've seen to this is given by a guy named George MacDonald. He was very influential um, in the life of C.S. Lewis. He said this, and I have the quote up here, in one of his uh, writings called Unspoken Sermons. Why does God make us wait? He says, he, speaking of God, made delay because it would not be safe to give us at once what we ask. We are not ready for it, To give air we could truly receive would be to destroy the very heart and hope of prayer, to cease to be our Father. The delay itself may work to bring us nearer to our help, to increase the desire, perfect the prayer, and ripen the receptive condition. Let me just translate a little bit of what he's saying. Why does God have us wait? Waiting is how God prepares and changes us so that we are ready to receive his best gifts, to get us nearer to what we really need, to increase our desire for what is good. He says to perfect our prayers, and he says to ripen the receptive condition, and I think this might be the most important one of all. Waiting is one of God's main tools and how to build into us maturity and character. If, if you spoil a child, if there's no waiting in a child's life, you say, what do you want? Here you go. Have it right away. Anything you want, it's yours. When that child grows up, unless there is a great miracle of God, that child will not have maturity and character. Instead, they will carry around great immaturity and immediate gratification. God, in developing us in our character, he uses the tool of waiting. As Jesus builds us as a church, as Jesus builds a life, he does it through times of waiting. That's why we need the promise. He is sovereign. He is in control. Jesus is risen. All things will be made new. All right. All wrongs will be right. All tears will be wiped away. As he has kept these promises in Jesus, he will keep them for all those who trust in him. The Bible teaches there are really only two foundations to build our lives on in our churches as well. We can build our lives on promise, or we can build our lives on performance. Promise is about what God has done and will do. Performance, it's all up to us. Lesson one in Acts says live from a gospel foundation of what God will do for you, not what we will do for God and for ourselves. And so the busiest people, the most anxious people, and the busiest and the most anxious churches need to step back. And in those seasons in our life, ask ourselves, what's my foundation? What am I building on? Is it promise or is it performance? Let me summarize where we've come Foundation, number one, is proof. Jesus is risen, he's alive, he's acting, he's active. Acts is about him, and it's not up to us. He promises us power, and he always keeps his promises. But we so often lose sight of him. We often think it's up to us. Sometimes waiting, it feels too hard. We feel powerless. We feel weak, we feel ineffective, we feel unsure, and we feel lost. So where do we turn? Well, Acts shows us. That's the final part of the story, the last scene. The disciples turn to prayer. Prayer is the third part of the foundation. They have no idea what to do in verses 9 through 11. They're looking up and standing there going, okay, Jesus is gone. Now what? And they're just like, "We'll just stand here and wait. You see, and they're just standing there looking up. And so the angels come and they say, what are you doing just standing here? And they're just wondering, I don't, I don't know. I guess we're not supposed to stand here. So what are we supposed to do? And verse 14 tells us. They said, what do we do? Let's pray. It says they were continually united in prayer. This wasn't just a 15-minute prayer meeting or something tacked on to the end of the real business of their strategy meeting. This was the business. Ten days of waiting and prayer. Eugene Peterson says, waiting in prayer is a disciplined Refusal to act before God acts. I love that. So challenging. Throughout the book of Acts, all the decisive turning points in the story hinge on prayer. Acts 8, the gospel going to Samaria. Acts 9, the gospel going into the heart of Saul. Acts 10, the gospel going outside of those with a Jewish background to Cornelius. Acts 13 in Antioch, the first missionary journey. God does his work of building a church and building a life on the foundation of prayer. So many of us, including me, we struggle with prayer. Because it feels like there are so many other productive things we can be doing with our time. If we are honest, prayer feels like nothing's happening. Feels like a waste. Shouldn't I be busy about doing something? This exposes our foundations. This is a crack in the foundation of our lives when we see that we have prayerlessness. It's a serious crack. My Christian friends, I want to speak to you because it's a crack that shows us we have forgotten the gospel because prayerlessness is simply the active expression of a belief at our foundations, And that's why we don't pray, because we forget the gospel. We think it's up to us. We think we have the power. We're not sure if we need all that much help. And so we go about our lives without prayer. But what is the gospel? The gospel is we are powerless. We are helpless. We are unable to save ourselves. But Jesus is a Savior who has more power. He is more willing to help. He is more able and more loving than anything we could ever imagine. And we forget. It's not up to us to earn a place in his kingdom. It's only by what Jesus has done. Jesus, who suffered for us and who rose again for us, is alive and ascended. So our prayerlessness exposes that crack. It's that expression of a belief that what he has done for us, it starts us off. And now it's up to us. So many of us operate with that mindset and that belief. Here Jesus begins it. I'll begin with the gospel. And the rest of my life, it's up to me to build on that foundation. But what this story here at the very beginning of Acts shows us is that this is wrong. What Jesus has done starts us off. And what he has done and is doing continues us on. It's only that that keeps us going. And we build our lives on that. Prayer, then, is the verbalized and the, express, and the express belief in the gospel that we are powerless, we are helpless, we don't have the ability to do and to be all that God calls us to be. It's not based on our performance, but it's only based on his promise. But that brings up another issue with prayer, and that is, well, what promise and guarantee do I have that God will listen to my prayers? It seems like I pray so often and I'm not getting an answer. What promise do I have? Acts tells us what we are promised. We are promised the Holy Spirit. We are promised the Holy Spirit. When we read that and when I say that, even in a Presbyterian church, there should be shouts of joy. Yes, yes. But we go, the Holy Spirit, good, that's good. Holy Spirit, that's good. But what about all the other things I need? What about all the other things I'm asking for? In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus said this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the best gift we could ever ask for, and the very best gift we could receive. It's ethereal, it's hard to grasp, but here, let me explain it like this the Holy Spirit does these two things. Number one, it's on the slide. He takes the gospel, he takes the reality and the truth about Jesus, he takes that objective truth deeper into us. That's what he does. The objective becomes subjective and real to us. He makes the truth that becomes muddy to us. He makes it clear and real. He actually gives us taste of the resurrection life. He takes the promises that we struggle to see and to believe and he assures us, God will keep these promises to you and he drives it into our hearts. He makes it go deep. He also takes the gospel, the reality and the truth about Jesus. He takes it out through us. We see in Acts, the Spirit keeps moving the gospel out to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, over and over again, overcoming the inertia of people who are just not comfortable taking the gospel out. They don't know what to say. They're afraid. They don't have the boldness, but somehow the Spirit keeps taking it out. The Father promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He is the best gift we could ever receive, the presence, the power of God. So let me just conclude with this. This mission described in the book of Acts, being witnesses to the ends of the earth, is given to the apostles but is passed on to the church. It's our mission. It's God bringing resurrection, truth into the world. Everyone is called to this mission. No one is exempt, but no one is qualified for this mission, but everyone is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even the disciples, they spent 40 days. They knew Jesus. They walked with him. They were instructed by him for 40 days. That wasn't enough. They still needed to wait and pray for the Holy Spirit. So what if I said, you know what? <clears throat> this is fall kickoff. We're going to still have tacos. We're still enjoy the day. But we're just going to cancel all those plans that we had for fall ministry. Instead of all that stuff, we're just going to wait and pray. I don't know how excited you would be about those plans if I said, I have an exciting plan to unveil for this fall. We're going to wait and pray. That's how Jesus built the foundation of his church. We're not going to cancel tacos. We're not going to cancel our plans. I think God is calling us to do that. But this needs to be at the bottom, at the foundation of everything we do. As you consider how God is calling you to go deeper, to go out, let's remember the foundation. Jesus is alive. It's true. He's at work. Remember promise, his promise. God keeps all of his promises. However you find yourself waiting this morning, and prayer. prayer is our link. Prayer is our connection to the presence and the power of God. And so I'm going to close with prayer right now in just a moment, but I'm going to allow you just a, a time to be silent. Where do you in your life right now need to remember it's not up to you? Jesus is alive. Where are you waiting? Just take, take a moment. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're just going to let that sink in. I'm going to let you pray. We're united in prayer together as a church. Let's be united, let's wait, and let's pray. And I'll close us. our gracious Heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to your children, I pray as you bring things up into our minds and hearts, places where we feel like it's all up to us, where we need to be assured of your presence and you're at work, and places where we just feel like we're waiting and we've been waiting for a long time and it's hard. I pray into these places, into our hearts, you would send your Holy Spirit Drive the gospel deep into us, deep into our church, we ask. We plead with you. And may the gospel somehow, through our weakness and our brokenness and our fears, go out through us into other people's lives. It's only possible by your power, by your strength. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.